Welcome to the Conservation Weekly Podcast, a quick dive into the stories impacting wildlife and wild places across the globe. Each week, we'll touch on a few of the most groundbreaking, astonishing, and impactful stories in conservation, giving you topics to ponder, successes to celebrate, and challenges for us as conservationists to overcome. I'm your host, Lauren Ayers. Now let's continue the conservation conversation. <laughs> All right, it is May 10th, 2020. Today we are talking about an island inhabited by venomous snakes, conservation of a unique snow forest, eels that need to socialize, and discussing captive beluga welfare. I am joined today by the show's new co-host, a fellow wildlife care professional, serpent enthusiast, and all-around cool dude, Sylvester Martinez. Welcome to the show. Hey, Lauren. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, we have been tossing around a bunch of different ideas for this week's podcast episode. And one story, although it's not new this week, but something that piqued my interest as I was falling down a rabbit hole of quarantine internet searching was that of a snake island off the coast of Brazil. And its claim to fame is that it is the largest concentration of venomous snakes anywhere in the world. And the name of this island, and I'm going to butcher it because I don't speak Portuguese, is Ilha de Queimada Grande. But we're just going to call it Snake Island for the purposes of this show. And it is twenty, about 25 miles off the coast of Brazil, near Sao Paulo, and it's the home of the Golden Lancehead Viper. It's a critically endangered snake found nowhere else in the world. This is the only island, the only place in the world that you can find it, and it's possibly the most, one of the most venomous snakes in the entire world. And it's on this small, uninhabited island. So how did they get to this island? Well, uh, Millennia ago, the island was actually not an island. It was connected to the mainland. Water levels were a lot lower at that time. Since then, sea levels have rose, and it caused their the snake's ancestors to become isolated on this island. And this is, an, a, this is a great example of genetic drift. So the animals have uh, not had any predators on the island, and they have been able to consistently evolve to create this very strong venom. And they can use this venom to quickly incapacitate birds. They've evolved to actually live in trees as well as on the ground, but to climb up into the trees and slither up into the trees and quickly incapacitate and kill birds. So without any predators, they've been able to re reproduce very quickly and so quickly that it's estimated that in some places on the island, there's about one snake per square meter. But there's actually no accurate population estimate because it is incredibly dangerous to be on the island to do any kind of significant population count. So this island is 
incredibly dangerous. It's got a ton of different local folklore stories uh, that the Brazilian people tell. Um, one of which, in the early 20th century, there is a lighthouse. And in the early 20th century, there was a family that took care of the lighthouse for about 10 years, roughly. Um, people were living on the island, taking care of this lighthouse, making sure that the light bulbs are changed and it was functional. And apparently in the middle of one night, the snakes got in through the windows of the family's home that cared for the lighthouse and started attacking them. And the people fleed their home and ran down the island's rocky cliffed sides and were found all deceased from snake bites along the way. So the lighthouse has not been maintained by a resident on the island since then, according to the folklore, because it is so incredibly dangerous for someone to even be on the island, let alone live there. Now, more recently, there's a story of a fisherman that was out getting his fish and decided he was maybe hungry, saw some bananas or some fruit growing off a tree on the coast of the island, decided to just park his boat there, get some fruit, take a break, but ran into these awful snakes and was found later in his boat, just adrift in the sea in a pool of his own blood covered in snake bites. So because of these you know, folklore, people are terrified to go to the island. Um, it is inherently dangerous and it does need to have a lighthouse on it. Lighthouses serve an important purpose for boats not running into land masses. So the island is maintained by the Brazilian Navy and one time a year, the Navy will go out and uh, maintain the lighthouse. So they're gonna bring in a bunch of batteries and change the light bulbs, make sure that everything is functioning. And it's an incredibly dangerous uh, military mission to go on to this island. Right. Definitely not an adventure that I'd feel comfortable going on. But there are a lot of researchers that are brave enough to go as well. They end up studying the venom, the snakes themselves. They try to get counts. They'll, do, they'll put up camera traps for them. Uh, and one of the things that they're trying to figure out is whether or not this venom could have some kind of medical benefits when it comes to human health care. And that's incredibly interesting to me because when I think of venom from snakes, I don't think of it being something that is going to be beneficial to the pharmaceutical industry for humans, but it could have uh, benefits such as cardiac care or even anti-cancer drugs. And venomous snakes are something that a good friend of mine is somewhat of an expert in. She works with venomous snakes, and I want to hear from her. Her name is Rachel Rose, and we're going to give her a call, and maybe she can tell us a little bit more about the venom in the Golden Lancehead Viper. Hey, Rachel, we've been talking about the Golden Lancehead Viper, and 
I know that you know a lot about snakes and venomous snakes, and I was hoping you could answer some questions for us. Yeah, I'd love to help you out. Sweet. So we know that these snakes are incredibly venomous. Why is their venom so strong in comparison to other venomous snakes? Uh, that's mostly because there are no mammals found on that island. So these guys are dependent upon catching and devouring the migratory birds that come in lands and make pit stops on that island. How does their venom kill birds then? Well, for the birds, pretty much it's going to be like a crazy enzyme that's going into their body that as they spring it, it's like an enzyme that starts pretty much almost dissolving the flesh and the skin of the bird as it starts to eat it. Oh, wow. So they're like flesh-eating venom snakes. Pretty much. Great. So then what happens if a person gets bit? Well, as you would think, if it, what it can do to a bird, imagine to a person. Yeah, we're a lot bigger, but it's still going to hurt us quite a bit. Um you can expect a significant, just even the bite wound itself will be crazy trauma to your, wherever you get bit, whatever that sight wound is. And then what would happen is you're going to be in a lot of pain. It's going to be swollen. There's going to be bleeding, bruising. It's going to be traveling up your body. It's going to be vomiting. It's not going to be a pretty sight, that's for sure. Pretty much it could lead to, like, kidney failure, body like anything pretty much all your organs are going to fail once the venom spreads fantastic and so that's super quick and is there any sort of antidote there actually is anti-venom available that you can treat it the only thing is is uh when people think of anti-venom they only think of getting like a d one dose of anti-venom sometimes that will do the trick but most most venomous bite cases with all things including these vipers um and mostly because of the study done on their cousins in the same um family they pretty much you have a chance of dying oh. anybody can die from it pretty much some people have like some people have um, allergic reactions to the anti-venom. Some people, the anti-venom is not enough. Sometimes that venom is just going to pretty much just go straight to them and they don't have a chance. Great. Fingers crossed we're not one of those. Yeah, let's not go to that island. <laughs> um, yeah, that's crazy because I think in my mind, you give anti-venom, it's like, oh, well, now now you're, you're cured. It, all of a sudden, you're better. So I had no idea it was like that. Oh, no. Oh, wow. Fun fact, though, is the more often you're treated with anti-venom, the more likely you're going to develop an allergic reaction to it. Oh, great. So, you know, so don't plan on getting bit multiple times, please. To the anti-venom, you develop an allergic reaction to the anti-venom. Yep. Wow. Yep. That's scary. Every, every person I've talked to or we've had talks with, pretty much if They've been bitten more than twice, the second time, the third time, and some people are even a fourth time who shouldn't be handling venomous snakes. 
<laughs> yeah, if you're getting bit like, that much. Yeah, every single time it gets a hundred times worse for them. So then if the actual venom from the snake bite doesn't kill you, the anti-venom will probably could. kill you. It could. Yeah. Okay. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Even more of a reason to stay away from venomous snakes. Uh, just leave them where they're at. So, okay. I With all of this knowledge... I know that there's probably a lot of people that may just want to say, okay, well, we've got this island full of snakes. There's no mammals there. The birds can fly away. Why don't we just burn it down with fire? You know, (laughs) you see like memes where people are like, burn it with fire. I hate venomous snakes. So they're really endangered, right? And I mean, why should we care about these snakes? Because Snake Island is the only island these snakes exist. (laughs) If we got rid of them, then the snake would no longer exist. Yeah, and that's definitely not our call as people to make, you know, because they evolved this super potent venom. And I think that that's really cool, that nature has the ability to evolve things like that. Um, that are found nowhere else in the world. Exactly. I mean, everything about them, they evolved separately or differently than their like closely related cousins because they're on an island. They need to catch food. They're on their food birds, so they're going to develop different adaptations, and there's no other snake like it. I, I feel like I have a much greater appreciation <laughs> for people that work closely with venomous reptiles now learning about how people or prey hopefully (laughs) die not people from the bites and the fact that the anti-venom is that you know it's not an end-all be-all like you can't rely on that so I think for me I'm just gonna continue to stay away from venomous snakes and admire them from a distance or at the zoo on the other side of glass. And that is the best way to do it. Great. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. You're very welcome. So because of that strong venom and the potential for benefits in human medical care, as well as the Um, collection market for people to have them either privately or in zoological facilities, there is a very high value on these critically endangered golden lancehead vipers. Uh, Somewhere between 10 to 30,000 US dollars can be um, estimated as the cost or the price for one individual snake. So the black market for these guys is incredibly high, which ends up leading to a high rate of poaching um, or snake smuggling off of the island, which we already know is incredibly illegal for people to just even go on the island, let alone kind of interfere with these um, critically endangered snakes. So in addition to those um, you know, poachers affecting the populations, there is a bit of habitat degradation in terms of the Navy being able to um, manage the foliage on the island and they're they're taking some of that down in order to be able to make it up into the lighthouse. Um, there's also disease outbreaks that have happened within this population on the island 
And estimates say that there has been about a 50% reduction in this entire snake population in just the last 15 years. So I think the moral of this whole story is that although we have these incredibly interesting, very potentially valuable for human benefit uh, animals that are critically endangered, we should probably just leave them be on the island. What do you think about that? I think that, uh, yes, I think it should be, they should be left alone. However, I do think that it's the, the possibilities of what we can learn from their venom could be very helpful, but it needs to be done in a very responsible way. Uh, so getting the proper permits from the Brazilian government would be the ideal way to do it. Hopefully the Brazilian government is willing to work with them to work with researchers and other people that are interested in creating medicine from their venom. Uh, but that's going to be the most responsible way to find out. Yeah. So legal collecting as well as possibly captive breeding of them is going to be probably the best way that we as people can benefit and learn from these snakes, but also to preserve and protect the wild population of them there. So Good job to the Brazilian government for protecting this area and protecting the animals and concurrently working with researchers to bring them out when they have to do governmental maintenance on that lighthouse. Agreed. So this week on my Good News 2's video, which is just a quick little glimpse into positive conservation stories, I talked a bit about a temperate rainforest in Alaska and the conservation of that land. And so during our research for the podcast this week, Syl was able to come across a sort of similar story about a temperate rainforest that is in Canada. And it was purchased by a big conservation organization. Tell me a little bit more about that. So the the conservation organization is the Nature Conservancy of Canada, and they just recently purchased a sizable amount of land to add, add to their uh, conservation area known as Darkwoods. And in this Darkwoods area, British Columbia, they have a lot of endangered animals and uh, plants, such as the uh, white bark pine tree and the rare mountain caribou. Okay, so what I know about caribou is that caribou are typically animals that live in plains or tundras because they're going to be up near the Arctic Circle. And mountain caribou are a very unique and actually endangered subspecies of caribou. So the mountain caribou are pretty much restricted to Alberta, British Columbia, and a little bit of northern Idaho and northwestern Montana. So they are kind of neighbors of my, uh, my hometown. Now the mountain caribou, they're slightly darker in color, which is going to help them out in terms of blending in with their habitat. So the lighter color 
caribou that are going to be found in the tundra, they're going to blend in with the habitat there. Whereas if you're in the mountains, there's a lot of forests and you are going to need to hide in kind of a darker area. So they have a darker coat color. Um, they're slightly smaller. They're also known to be a little more what they call sedentary. So they're not going to be migrating around um, in large herds like the tundra types of caribou. They're going to be kind of hanging out in the, uh, in the same region um, for an extended period of time. And what's so cool about this is about this purchase is that these animals will be protected in this area. The Nature Conservancy of Canada has done something very exciting by creating this nature reserve of 1,100 square kilometers, which is very large, and they're able to protect these animals from any kind of development from humans or any kind of destruction from humans. Uh, there's already been... Uh, logging in the areas. And with this purchase, they're going to work on restoring that forest that they've, that they've just made. And uh, that's what I think is so exciting about this. Great. Yeah. Preserving this forest, it, it almost reminds me of some of the, the, you know, of course there's national parks that are preserved areas that we have here. But um, over in Africa, something that I experienced was these conservancies in, in the areas where we would natively find, you know, the elephants or the giraffes or, you know, anything like that. When you think of going to Africa and going on a safari, the majority of those animals are living within these conservancies. And so they just, it is privately owned land, but it is an area where these animals can live and hopefully not have to worry about poaching or any, you know, human encroachment. Um, so it almost sounds very similar to that sort of setup. Right. And because of the fact that it is, it is privately owned, there will not, it, it doesn't matter if there's any kind of uh, regime change in Canada uh, right now. We know that with the current United States uh, presidency, they have uh, slashed the budget for a lot of the EPA and um, the Fish and Wildlife Service. So with this being privately held by a company, by an organization that whose sole uh, goal is to conserve this land, uh, you know that it is going to be protected uh, for many generations to come. Yeah. And that's great that it's not controlled by the government because like you're saying, it's uh, it's going to stay within that's the same uh, hands and hopefully continue to have that protection. So I think that that's incredibly important. I think it's a good step in the right direction. Um, and I would like to see the U S take a stand, you know, a stance similar to that and big conservation organizations here that maybe haven't purchased land. But I do know that there are quite a few smaller organizations that have been buying up open space land um, in the U.S. So it's really great that we do have conservation organizations that are that are now taking things into their own hands in terms of protecting land. I agree. It's so important.
The final story we're going to talk about today also involves an aquarium. And there are beluga whales that are possibly going to be imported into Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut. And they would be coming from marine land of Canada. So they are relatively close in distance because it is over um, in the eastern part of Canada is where marine land is located. And they are about 50 beluga whales that live at marine land, which is a large population of them. And Mystic Aquarium only has three belugas. Now, these animals live in large social pods out in the wild, naturally. So by importing five new animals, Mystic Aquarium hopes to kind of stabilize their pod and have eight total animals, which is a good number for them. However, captive cetaceans have a lot of controversy surrounding them as of recent. And naturally, there are going to be some detractors to this work. And a bill has been introduced to the Connecticut House of Representatives, and it's called Bill 5341. And Basically, what it states is that it's going to prohibit the transport of cetaceans, whales or dolphins, in and out of the state of Connecticut, as well as banning any breeding or artificial insemination of cetaceans within the state. Now, the argument with Mystic Aquarium, their president, Stephen Cohen, argues that the research that his facility is able to conduct will actually benefit wild populations of belugas. And this is something that has been proven with many different species, cetaceans and non-cetaceans alike, that captive or populations that are under human care are incredibly valuable to benefit conservation of their wild counterparts. Now, studies involving climate change, problems with pregnancies, milk composition, pollution, behavior, cognition. These are all examples of the type of studies that can be done with animals under human care that can then be extrapolated to understand and hopefully preserve wild populations um, through this type of research. So me personally, I say it's beneficial to import these animals from marine land to mystic because first of all if we look at the individual animals it's going to benefit the individual animals welfare introducing new animals into the pod at mystic aquarium is going to be beneficial for them because a group of only 3 animals is a small pod and adding 5 individuals is going to add diversity to their social grouping as well as provide them with a large habitat, it's actually the largest habitat in the United States for beluga whales, is at Mystic Aquarium. So they are a accredited institution um, providing excellent care and welfare to their individual animals. Now, in addition to the individual animals um, benefit, like I said, there is going to be benefit to the wild populations. However, people are continuing to, to fight this. And what happens down the road if this bill passes? 
the ramifications of this bill are going to affect the animals that are under the Mystic Aquarium's care. These beluga whales, there's three of them right now, like you mentioned, and if they end up, if this bill does end up going through, after two of them pass after a certain amount of times, you're basically fading that last one to a uh, life in isolation. And that is incredibly unfair and cruel to that animal. Uh, the best thing to do would be to introduce new individuals that will be able to keep its behaviors natural for as long as possible. So, but why wouldn't if one of the animals remains say that, you know, they, they ban this import. So these animals are not going to come from Marine land of Canada into Mystic Aquarium. The Mystic Aquarium is going to continue with their stable population of three animals, the small number. And then those two die off and there's one left. Well, why not just send that one to a different aquarium? Well, unfortunately, this bill says that you won't be able to move any animals in or out of Connecticut. So that won't be able to happen. Okay, so basically it is dooming that last animal to a death in solitude. And this is an incredibly social animal that needs to be with others of its kind. Correct. And then you actually have a lot of people that argue that they need to release these animals out into the wild. But there's a lot of problems with that because these animals, these beluga whales, have not gained the abilities, the... Uh, or the skills to be able to live out in the wild is something that's very incredibly difficult to do. And you need to, the animals need to have the proper uh, knowledge of where to hunt for food. The ocean is so vast. Uh, they need to be able to communicate with other animals of their species. Um, that was actually one of the biggest problems with uh when people try to do that before, a lot of people don't talk about it. But with Keiko, the orca that people tried to train to re-release back out into the wild, that animal could not figure out how to join another pod. Killer whale dialect right. is different within familial groups, within regional groups. Belugas have a very similar different but similar social and almost language structure so to re-release these animals that you know there are very few of them that were actually wild caught decades and decades ago in the 1970s um vast majority of them were born under human care um so it's all they've known their entire life that's all they've known so even the ones that did originally come from the wild we're not going to be able to find their original pod and they tried that with Keiko the killer whale. So that is off the table. The other thing that people suggest is, well, what about giving them a sea pen? Let's have a, a wild simulated area in ocean waters that is big and large and bigger than something that an aquarium could have. And, and an argument for that is that these animals have been dependent on people. And they understand, people understand that, okay, maybe they can't be re-released to their own devices out in the wild. So we're going to put them in the sea pen. But the ocean is dirty. It's got a lot of microbes and bacteria and things that are going to infect the animals. And even if we do offer them a home in a larger 
CPEN environment where they are still dependent on people to provide them with food, we're basically taking them out of a metaphorical bubble where they have not been exposed to any of these pathogens and then immersing them into this soup of microbes that could infect them. And that is ultimately why Keiko, the killer well, ended up dying was because of a bacterial lung infection, because he had not been exposed to these kind of pathogens in his time under human care. So he didn't have a developed immunity. And when re-releasing him to the wild, A, he couldn't hunt, so he depended on people. B, he couldn't join up with the pod, so he was alone. And C, he didn't have the immunity to even sustain himself despite not having a pod or you know, people taking care of him. So even if we do release them to a C-pen, we're going to put them on antibiotics. And a lot of that information and that knowledge that we know about the health of cetaceans comes from the fact that we have had them under human care and we've been able to do research on them so that we're able to help out those wild counterparts. Correct. A lot of the appreciation, the knowledge, and the people that love cetaceans and care about them, doesn't matter what side of the captivity debate you're on, all of that is due to the fact that we have had them under human care for a significant amount of time. Prior to SeaWorld's existence, killer whales were thought of as pests. The U.S. government actually shot and killed them in Puget Sound because they were thought of as extremely dangerous and they were affecting fishermen fishermen's catches in the area. So they were affecting humans' commerce. So people went out and killed them. We didn't know what kind of intelligence these animals had at the time. We didn't understand how charismatic they were. We just thought of them as these big, giant killing machines. And that is how Orsinus orca, orcas, got the nickname killer whales. It was because we thought of them as these vicious killers. So without having that kind of personal, up-close connection and ability to study their behavior, their social interactions, we, as people, don't know and didn't care about them like we do now. So why should we go back to that? And how are we going to understand their behavior if we release them into the ocean? These animals that dive a thousand feet down to hunt for food, we can't get the same sort of lifelong ability to monitor and study an individual's development and behavior and, you know, Yeah, I totally understand what you mean. If we wanted to draw blood on a wild orca or beluga, that would be incredibly stressful, incredibly invasive to be able to get that close just to do something as simple as getting an ultrasound on on an animal You can or drawing blood. You can do that with the animals that you have under human care, and those animals don't mind at all right. because they're trained and they're positively reinforced for us to be able to get that information. And it is cooperative care. They are voluntarily participating in these types of studies. It's not like a lab rat that's tied up in 
a small cage and is unable to escape in, you know, they're drawing blood from it that way. That's not happening. These animals are choosing to interact with the people. They could swim off and do whatever they want. No, food is not being withheld. That's another false allegation of detractors of captive um, animal welfare is that, oh, well, they just don't feed them unless they participate. That's not true. The animal will always get their food. Animals like this choose to interact with people because they like the interaction. They are enjoying it. And without getting too anthropomorphic, they like to have a relationship with people. Out in the wild, them swimming hundreds, thousands, whatever of miles, it's because they have to find food. There is no food. We are damaging the wild at unprecedented rates here as people. There is no food out there for them. So the reason they are swimming this far is because they have to be able to find food. They have no other choice. They would just die. Just like us, if we had no grocery stores and we had to farm our own food and figure it out on our own, it would be an incredibly stressful existence. But we have the conveniences of grocery stores and restaurants. Think of that as similar to the animals that live under human care. They have the convenience of the food being offered to them. They don't have to swim exorbitant distances in order to find their food. It's not a necessity for the animals that exactly. are at Mystic Aquarium. Yes. And we, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on through their head. Would they choose to swim that far for their food? Probably not. But we can, uh, you know, assume that it is a better existence for them under human care in a facility like Mystic Aquarium, where we can provide these individual eight animals the five coming in, as well as the three that currently live at Mystic Aquarium, with the best animal welfare possible for those individuals. And I think the most important aspect of this whole thing, what regardless of where you stand on cetaceans being kept under human care, is what are we doing out in the wild to protect the wild animals yet again? By blocking this, this uh, transport in and out of the state, Obviously, we've talked about the effects that that's going to have on these individual animals, but blocking them in and out is going to affect the wild counterparts negatively. It is not going to benefit the wild counterparts. So ultimately, I have a question for the legislator behind this Connecticut bill, Mr. David Michelle. Rather than spending your time, energy, and taxpayer dollars to put through some sort of bill to prevent this transfer, that obviously has a ton of benefits for the individual animals as well as those in the wild. Why are you not utilizing those resources to put forth legislation to support wild populations of belugas? Or sustainable fishing. Just there's so much that he could put his energy towards instead. Yes. If you're choosing to spend your time here, I want to see 10 times the amount of effort into preserving wild beluga populations before I will give you the time of day to tell me what I should believe in terms of captive animal welfare. And that is your Conservation Weekly update for May 10th, 2020. Links to any relevant materials are going to be in the show notes, along with a way to donate to help support this podcast at anchor.fm backslash conservation weekly. 
If you like what you heard today, please hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and tune in next week for another episode of the Conservation Weekly Podcast. Until then, continue the conservation conversation. Thank you.